Genesis chapter 2. We're going to do the second half here of Genesis 2. We're going to pick it up in verses 16 and go through verse 25. Um, Let's do the smart thing and have a quick word of prayer before we get too far into this. Uh, Heavenly Fathers, we just get to a lot of topics here tonight. We pray as always, you would be the God that teaches and we would be the people that listen through your spirit. We say thank you and we praise you and pray go before all things in all ways. In your name, amen. Now, the reason there's no sheets tonight or anything is because there's so many different topics we're going to be talking about. And this is more of a talk about the topic per se because the topics are going to be, the main focus is really going to be marriage. And also it's going to be original sin. Now this idea of original sin is going to carry on into Genesis 3. We'll get into more detail of that last week. We're at least introduced to it now. So let's get this going here first. We left off last week in verse 15. And we did the final days of creation, the seventh day of rest. We talked about the Sabbath. And then we kind of went through man being created and what that means. And we left off in verse 16. It says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may eat freely. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, this is a key thing in history. This, this sets the whole tone of history. If man eats this, sin enters the world. Sinners in the world. We need Jesus to come save us. If man does not eat this, we're still living in the Garden of Eden the way God originally intended. This is a real big pet peeve of mine. Anytime I run into somebody who says, I find it difficult to believe and worship a God, who allows these horrible things and wants these horrible things to happen on this world. And my response is, I would find it hard to believe and worship that same God too. This was not God's original plan. God's original plan was the Garden of Eden. We messed up that original plan when we sinned. We'll get into more of that next week in Genesis 3. But then the question comes up, what type of God is a God that's trying to make you fall? I mean, I read verses uh, 16 and 17, and uh, initial reading, it's like, Lord... You want them to fall. It's like me going home and telling the boys, I'm going to put ten pieces of candy around the table. You can have all those nine, but that one right in the middle, you just can't eat that one. Well, if I don't want them to eat that one, why do I even put it on the table? I kind of look at this and it's like, Lord, you don't want them to eat of the tree, so why'd you even put the tree in there? And the true answer is because if there is no choice, how can you ever say that you're devoted to something? See, what is love without choice? I love Dawn. Dawn loves me. Why? Because out of the six billion people in the world, I chose to marry her and she chose to marry me. There was a choice. So therefore, there's love. If someone came up to Dawn and said, why'd you marry James? And he was the only man in the world. That's not really love. That's just by default. So why do I serve God? Well, there's no other choice. By default. There is another choice. That choice is eat the tree. So God allowed that tree to be in there to show what is your choice, what is your following. Same thing happens in the millennial reign of Christ. For a thousand years, Satan is bound. For a thousand years, we get to have Jesus rule and reign on this earth the way it was supposed to be. And then after a thousand years, they let Satan loose. Now, why in the world would they let Satan loose? Because those people that were born during the millennial reign of Christ for those thousand years never had to choose. By default, they had to follow the leading of Jesus. They had no other choice. When they let Satan loose, one of the saddest passages in the Bible is that there's a huge rebellion against God. So if I came to you right now and said, here's your choice, love God and live in the Garden of Eden, that's your only choice. That's not a choice. The choice is now love God, live in the Garden of Eden, or on your own free will decide to eat the tree and go out on your own. 
By choosing to love God and live in the Garden of Eden, you are now displaying a free will choice to follow Him, where beforehand there is no choice. So even though, and I'll choose my words carefully, even though I dislike verses 16 and 17, I understand the importance of verses 16 and 17. I see the need for verses 16 and 17. What is choice? Well, excuse me, what is love without choice? God could have designed robots that would just serve Him and love Him. He wanted us to freely choose to follow Him. We'll get more into verses 16 and 17 last week in Genesis chapter 3. A couple quick points, please do note in verse 17. It says, when you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, this is not an instantaneous death. Sin is very rarely instantaneously painful. Adam actually lived for a good 900 plus years after he ate of the tree. That's the problem with sin. You can go out and do something awful on a Friday night. You can stumble home, get in your bed, and realize no one saw me, no one caught me. I got away with it. That's not instantaneous pain. You can snap at somebody, and they don't immediately do anything. I got away with it. You can look at something online. You can have a thought in your head. There's so many sins that we can do where there's not an instantaneous result. But what we don't realize is that sin is slowly killing us. Adam ate of the tree, and guess what? Nothing happened. He didn't die right away. But it began the process of death of sin. For him, it took 900 years. So we have to realize when it says you will surely die, we will surely die. This is the problem with sin. We see people in this world do things, dare we say, get away with it. There's no ramifications to it. Big deal. I slept with them. I slept with her. I did this. I tried this. Nothing came out of it. Nothing happened. Obviously, it's not a big deal. No, it's slowly killing you. That's what sin does. And note, what's doing the killing in verses 16 and 17? Sin. See, the Bible says in Numbers 32, your sin will find you out. See, we almost look at God as this mean guy hovering over the tree, saying, as soon as you eat it, I'm just going to knock you down. No, as soon as you eat it, you allow sin to come into your life. It's been said many times before that the heart disease and the cancer doesn't kill you. Sin is what kills you. Sin is what's going to cause every one of our deaths. I heard a pastor say, on every death certificate, it should just say cause of death sin. Because that is what takes your life. So what caused the fall of the Garden of Eden of Adam and Eve? Sin did. And that's what you see introduced in verses 16 and 17, choice. That choice has full ramifications in chapter 3, which we'll get into next week. Does anybody have any quick questions, comments over that right there? Rose. It is, and I actually wrote in my notes, verse 16, I wrote, do we look at what we have, or do we look at what we can't have? And if you look at what you have, Adam and Eve could have went around the entire garden and said, we can partake, 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 partake. What is human nature? Human nature is, oh, there's that one tree God said not to. Let's go look at it. Yeah. Right. Right. But human nature is, the, the proverbial, it says, what paint? What do we do? We touch. 
stay off grass, we walk on it. So, yeah, I mean, and I shared this joke with you just a couple weeks ago. Richard said it probably took Adam and Eve about 15 minutes. Because what are you going to do? Where's that one tree we can't eat? Let me go take a look at it. I'm not going to touch it. I just want to go see it. That's what we do. So, anybody else have anything about this before we move on? Yeah, Tina. Yeah, it's it's a spiritual death that it's, and that's what sin does. You're right. Sin is a physical death that happens over time, but it's more importantly here, and we're going to get into this next week, a spiritual death where Adam and Eve lost fellowship and relationship with God, and that's why we have to have the Savior. So there was the physical death that took nine centuries for Adam, but there's also the spiritual death that happened instantaneously where they were no longer allowed to be in the Garden of Eden. Anybody else got anything here before we move on? Okay, kind of changes subjects a little bit in verse uh, 18. And the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there's not found a helper comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, Now this is bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. You see the institution of marriage. I think this is something that's vitally important. Because so often when we look at the Garden of Eden, we look at the Garden of Eden as ceasing to exist. The institution of marriage supersedes the fall. And marriage is still around today. Marriage is a blessing. I've said before out here, if, if your marriage is in the Lord, it's the greatest blessing you could ever have. If your marriage is struggling, it's the greatest curse you could ever have. Marriage can be the most fun in the world and the worst thing in the world almost at the exact same time. And you see the institution of marriage is supposed to be this wonderful blessing that God actually created before sin came into the world. And it's supposed to be amazing. Look at this. Verse 18, it's good that man, it is not good that man should be alone. He needs a helper. Man has a need. And so now if you are called to marriage, you have a need. If you have called to be single, Paul makes this very clear in Corinthians. Some are called to marriage, some are called to being single. If you choose to be called into marriage and you choose to get married as a man, you're accepting the fact in verse 18 that you have a need. This is what I see what happens. I see men get married. And I see their marriages go south, and then all of a sudden they say, I don't need her. I was fine without her. Then why in the world did you marry her? You had a need. You had a need that was filled by that woman. And what happens now when the marriage is going bad, you're trying to convince yourself that you no longer need her. Men are prideful and arrogant in that statement of, I don't need her. Yeah, you do. God said you did. Back in verse 18, you needed a helper. And men have to accept the fact that that is something that is needed. If you've been chosen to go into the bounds of marriage, you're choosing to accept the fact that that is a need you have. If you choose to remain single, that's your choice. But too often in marriage, we see men get married and then complain, saying, I don't need her. Well, you're wrong. Verse 18 makes it clear. So what happens then? Verse 20, God reiterates. But for Adam, there's not found a helper comparable to him. Now, note it's comparable And we see that the woman is made out of the rib. And this has been said many times by many different pastors. It's vital that it's chosen the rib to be the body part. If it was the foot, it would show that man's over the woman. If it was the head, it would show that woman's over the man. It's the rib. It shows an equality there. 
And it's also the rib because the rib does what? It protects the heart, the vital organs. Too often in marriage, you see men going into marriage with this mindset that this woman is below them and they're very demeaning and they're very rude and disrespectful. And then they wonder why years later they have a wife that's rude and disrespectful back to them. The woman responds to the man. And so what happens here, God is trying to tell Adam from the beginning, this is a helper comparable to you. This is an equal to you. That you have the same chance at salvation in the Holy Spirit as anybody, and that's the blessing of marriage coming together. Woman is not below. Woman is not above. There's an equality there. Now, women, here's the thing. You look at your husbands, and you get frustrated with them. I get lots of phone calls, lots of emails, lots of marriage counseling. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say 90% of it is the woman that's frustrated with her husband. Probably. It's just my, just my opinion. You can take it or leave it. And I hear the woman saying something like this. To the fact of, he does this, he does that. I've heard women say, I don't have three kids, I have four kids. And one of them is my husband. I hear women say that. I've had a woman call me one time, and I, and I remember I even refer back to her when I say this sometimes. I tell her, I remember you calling me. And you saying, soon after their marriage, I can't make him happy. And I said, I'm glad you realize that now. I think women go into marriage thinking they're going to make their husband happy. I have never met a woman that can make her husband happy all the time. Because God gives joy, not a woman. There's ups and downs in all things. Why is it that your husband is such a loser? Even the good ones. It's because he lost a rib. He's incomplete. I'm not making a joke. You married an incomplete man. You, you, you basically went to the store and found the discounted item that says parts missing, and you still willfully said, I want this. God is trying to tell you all the way back in Genesis 2, when you marry a man, you're accepting a broken piece. You're accepting... Now, look at just biblically. You think I'm joking, and I'm not. Biblically speaking, God said, man is broken, he lost a rib, and man can't go without a woman he needs her, and you women still choose to marry us. And then you complain about us. This is biblical. And what happens with this is then it leads to spiritual frustration, because women go into marriage thinking this guy's going to be the greatest. He's broken. He's missing things. He needs the woman. And then the woman gets frustrated because she goes, it's not my role. It's not my role to do all these things. Listen, it's not your role to be the slave maid servant, but it is your role to be the helpmate. And every now and then I'll go to Dawn and I'll say, Dawn, I need a helpmate on this one. I'm broken. I need it. And then there's frustration. Well, I have five boys. I don't need six. She never said that. But, <laughs> but the truth is, I need her. And so, too often in marriage, we lose what God is actually trying to tell us very plainly, very clearly in Genesis 2. Man is broken, man needs woman, and the reason woman was created is because there was a need. We would like to stop and say the reason woman was created is because, I don't know, it was just fun. Yes, it's fun, but the reason woman was created is because the Lord, I dare I say, noticed. It's like he almost overlooked it, and it's not that way. The Lord noticed man is incomplete without her. That's why it's so important. And I think it's vital, and I say this, I think, at every wedding I do. The book of Proverbs says this. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. What a wonderful proverb. He who finds a wife finds a good thing. And then I always tell this joke. There is no proverb that says she who finds a husband finds a good thing. 
It's, it's not in there. In fact, when we get to Genesis 3, the curse of the man is what? Weeds in the field, we have to work, we toil. What's the curse of the woman? You have to be married to man. And that is not, once again, that is the curse of woman, is that you are married to man. So what happens is women come and say, what's going on? That is your curse. An incomplete, broken man that needs you. Women just accept the fact you have one more kid than you think. Accept the fact that that is a helpmate. Accept the fact that this is part of the package deal. And that's why it's so important to have unconditional love. Because it goes both ways. Every marriage brings junk and baggage into it. Every marriage does. And part of marriage is learning to live with each other for the rest of our lives as a picture of Christ. You know, if you stop and you think about it, it says in the book of Ephesians, marriage is a picture of Christ's love for us. And so therefore, where do you think the enemy is going to attack? He's going to attack marriage. And that's exactly what he does. So what are we supposed to do here as men? Look, if we see in verse 21, what we're supposed to do is we're really supposed to fall asleep. <laughs> and this is also a spiritual point. The best way a man could help in marriage is just sleep and allow the Lord to do all the work. I can't make my wife happy. I can't make my wife go deeper in Christ. I can't make my wife be more of a woman of God. I can just love her like Jesus does. And I can do the best I can to encourage her spiritually. Think back to this whole sleep thing. When Abraham made the covenant with God, what did God do to Abraham? Put him to sleep. God works best while we sleep. Because we try to get involved. And I don't know how many times I've said this over the 13 years I've been a pastor. Marriage is simple. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and be a spiritual leader in your household. Women, love, honor, respect, and submit your husbands. That's marriage. That's Ephesians 5. We try to complicate it. There's no complicating it. This is the simplicity of what it's supposed to be. So men, if you're not happy in your marriage, very simple, straightforward questions, not to be rude. Are you loving your wife unconditionally like Jesus? And are you being a spiritual leader of your household? If you are, amen, keep doing it. Women, if you're not happy in your marriage, are you respecting, honor, and submitting unto your husband? Now, what happens usually is this. I usually have the man come and say, well, you know, I can't love her. Why? Jesus loved you. I have a man sometimes that will come up and say, well, she's so difficult to love. Well, we're difficult to love. Well, it's difficult to lead. Sometimes it is difficult to lead. I have the woman come up and says, he's not worthy of honor and respect. The Bible says you do not honor and respect him because of what he has done. You honor and respect him because of who he is. He is a creation of God, and God said, honor and respect the institution of marriage. Too often we look at it as my wife must earn my love, and my husband must earn my respect. Those are not biblical concepts. I love Dawn because God told me to, and Dawn respects and honors because God told her. I always ask a trick question. The first session of all marriage counseling is, why do you want to get married? And the answers usually are, oh, she makes me laugh, or she's wonderful, he's great, etc. And I always say, that's none of that's true. They're not, one of these days, they're not going to make you laugh. Well, she's so pretty, she's so nice, but one day she's going to be ugly. You're going to still love her? The answer I'm looking for is, I am marrying her because God told me to. That's not romantic, but that's biblical. Dawn and I have arguments, and we have fights. And when we have an argument and a fight, sometimes this is what we say to each other. I love you, but right now, I do not like you but I am still committed to you. And we use the word committed in our marriage a lot, probably more than what we use the word love. I am committed to you. Because committed shows to me a deeper meaning even than the word love. I've joked before, I love my dog, I love my wife, and I love chicken McNuggets. 
Now, there's different levels there, right? I'm not committed to my dog, and I am not committed to Chicken McNuggets. I am committed to my wife. And so in marriage, the most loving thing I can tell Dawn is I am committed to you no matter what happens. It's not romantic, and it doesn't make any Hollywood movies, but when I look her in the eye and say, I am committed to you, that's deeper than anything. And what you see here in marriage is this commitment. Why? Because, verse 23, she is not bone of my bone, she is flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, they shall become one flesh. There is a oneness in marriage, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. You are one in marriage. Three items you need to be one in. Spiritually, emotionally, and physically. Too often in relationships in the world, we try to get one out of three or two out of three, and we say, that's not bad. I know couples that base their relationship on physical oneness. There's no spiritual oneness. There's no emotional oneness, and they wonder why there's not a closeness. I know couples that base their commitment on emotional oneness or maybe a physical oneness. There's an attraction, but there's no foundation on Christ. You've got to have all three, spiritual, emotional, and physical. There's a oneness that comes from that. And too often in marriage, let's just be honest, the spiritual oneness is the first thing to go. Then what happens after spiritual oneness? Generally, you lose the emotional oneness and you lose the physical oneness, and there's no longer oneness. A phrase I use in marriage counseling all the time is you guys are in husband and wife, you're roommates that don't even get along. Because there is not a oneness. God has asked you to be one flesh. Ecclesiastes, threefold cord. Your spouse, you, and the Lord. United together as one. Another phrase I always say in marriage, and if I was using Dawn and I, I would say from this day forward, it would no longer be James, it would no longer be Dawn, it would be James and Dawn. A oneness. And I'm not trying to pick on marriages. I see marriages that do not have a oneness. They have separate lives that just seem to come together around supper time and bedtime a little bit, and then they have separate lives. It takes a lot of work, and everybody knows this. I've only been married 17 years. I can't compare it to people who have been married longer. Marriage is a lot of work. It truly is. And it's so important to honor marriage. There's a great passage in the book of Hebrews where it says the marriage bed is honorable. And what we see in the society of today, marriage is not honored. It's not. I'm not trying to judge. I'm not trying to pick. Please don't take it that way. You see couples that choose to live together instead of honoring marriage. You see people that do not honor the institution of marriage. Marriage is a blessed thing. It's a wonderful blessed thing. And God blesses marriage when you do it right. He really does. And you don't see that today. You see marriage being under attack. We're not trying to get political here. And I don't think this is even a political statement. Marriage is one man, one woman. And this is what God has designed from the beginning. And what you see is this idea of marriage being under attack. You see that idea of coming up in some of the uh, homosexual ideas or even in some of the ideas of just living together is okay. That's not. God love you, but it's not right. Marriage is honorable in all ways and all things. So what happens to the blessing of being married? Verse 24, you leave your mother and father and you cleave to your wife. For most people, it's not that big a deal. Every now and then you see somebody who can't leave mom and dad. But I think it's even deeper than leaving mom and dad. And trust me, sometimes there's issues on leaving mom and dad. And I cannot stress this to you enough. One of the rules that we had in marriage, and I believe it was when um, uh, when we first got married, somebody told us this. And I'm going to put her on the spot because, Jody, I think it was you. I'm telling you, I think it was you, Jody. Jody, I think you told Dawn at one time that you keep private things private. Did you tell Dawn that once? 
Nope, I'm giving you credit. Jody Hathaway told Dawn one time that you keep private things private. And that's one thing that Dawn and I have tried to do in our marriage is if we do not see eye to eye, she doesn't run to her family. I don't run to my family. She doesn't run to her friends. I don't run to my friends. We keep private things private. Because what happens is too often you see sometimes when there's problems in marriage, next thing you know, you're running to everybody. And now, well, here's the problem. This is what's going on in the world we live in today. It's all over Facebook. It's all over the Internet. It's all over everything. Oh, for crying out loud. Keep your marriage private. If you've got problems and you can't figure it out, there's a system that God has set up in the church. It's not that we have all the answers as pastors. Come seek biblical counseling. Keep the private things private. You are one flesh. You have not married anybody else but your spouse. And when you got married, you left behind your family. You've got to remember that. And it's, sometimes it's not the family. It's what I sometimes call the single lifestyle. I see people get married and they still act like they're single. They still want to go out and do everything they used to do on Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night. You're married now. Life changes. It's different. You leave behind that single lifestyle and you focus on your spouse and your spouse alone. Listen, marriage, and I mean this in a good way. I mean this in a good way. Marriage can be suffocating. But it's a blessing. It's a blessing. It reminds me of when I am at home and all of a sudden if I lay on the floor at home, I guarantee you there's going to be five boys that jump on top of me. It is suffocating, but I love it. Dawn is suffocating, and I love it. And I'm suffocating to her, and she loves it, I hope. Because we're one flesh. Verse 25, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Here's another thing that you see in marriage, is you see there's a lack of openness. A lot of people look at verse 25, and they see the nakedness, and they must be talking about physical. Physical is part of marriage. I mean, it really is. We always talk about being one flesh emotionally, spiritually, physically. And I'm just going to throw this out there because I think it's biblically important to state this too. There's a reason why God has ordained sex to be left for marriage. Sex is a beautiful gift that God gives. And in the proper context of marriage, that's where it's a blessing. I heard somebody use this analogy one time with fire. Fire in my fireplace is beautiful and wonderful. Fire in my living room floor is dangerous. The same thing with intimacy. Intimacy in the bounds of marriage is wonderful. Intimacy outside the bounds of marriage... It may have fleshly fun for a little bit. It's going to come back to bite you. It's going to. And this is one thing I will say for Dawn and I, and I hope you guys don't feel I'm giving away too much information. We've been married 17 years. One of the greatest things that we did before getting married and even putting Christ first in our marriage, both of us were virgins when we got married. And I'm not afraid to admit that. I think that's the way it's supposed to be. And I tell you, that's been one of the greatest blessings that God has given us. So this both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. There's an openness of life. I see too many times a spouse coming up to me and saying, I'm struggling with this. And I'll say to her, have you talked to your husband about it? No, I can't talk to him. Whoa. And I don't mean this rudely. Please don't take this the wrong way. But if this is such a deep thing that you can't talk to your spouse, you probably shouldn't be talking to me about it. Or the husband will come up and say, I'm really struggling with this. Well, it sounds like you need to let your wife know. She's your helpmate. No, I'm not going to let her know. You're open, not ashamed with each other. There's a complete openness in all things and all ways in your marriage, and that's the blessing that it's supposed to be. When you're one flesh, you're one. Too often we see couples that are united together legally, but they're not united together spiritually and emotionally. It's a lot of work. I'm going to tell you that. Anybody that's been married, they know it's a lot of work. But what a blessing it can be And it's a beautiful picture of salvation. It's a beautiful picture of Jesus' love for us. Men, 
spiritually lead your families, love your wife unconditionally. If she doesn't want to be loved unconditionally, still love her. If she doesn't want to be led, still lead. Women, respect, honor, and submit to your husbands. Well, if he's not worthy of honor and respect, by golly, still do it. There's a bounds of marriage where this works. And I tell you, if you do what Ephesians 5 says, it all comes together. So part of the reason there was no sheets tonight is I knew I was going to ramble. So I'm done here for at least a little bit. Does anybody have any quick questions, comments, or anything we covered here? Ryan. What? <laughs> yeah, that's... We'll, uh, we'll go through that on the Thursday night study at 1 a.m. So we'll... we'll I, I, I have heard of Lilith before. i got to be honest. I have heard of that theory of Lilith. I have not heard of the theory of that she became immortal and be demon, and now she haunts children. Sounds like a bad horror flick, but... You know, it goes back, and I, don't, I know, Ryan, obviously you don't believe that. I know you. But I guess if anybody would ever bring that up to me, my simple response to that is, could you just show me that in the Bible? If you can show me Lilith in the Bible haunting kids and et cetera, then I'll believe it. But it's, yeah, I, that extra biblical stuff can be funky. And that's best word I can say for that. Yeah, Marcus. Mm-hmm. Right. No, I think there is important what Marcus was saying there. Do we think it's interesting to note that Adam was given the warning it looks like before Eve was there? You know, it says in Timothy, and we'll get into this next week, that Eve was deceived. Adam sinned. Now, I've heard people get bothered by that because they make it sound like, well, you're saying women are dumb. Eve was deceived. She gave into the deception and Adam sinned. Listen, I'm telling you, if you have to choose between those two, I think Adam looks like the dumb one. Eve was deceived. Adam just flat out sinned. So, is there something there? I would say there is something there. Because if we would go back to Genesis 3, and if we get into it next week, first off, number one, I don't know where Adam was when the serpent's talking to Eve. Number two, when the woman came with the fruit and Adam saw it, he should have just said, what are you doing? No. No. Adam, you see a lack of spiritual leadership. And when you see a lack of spiritual leadership in Genesis 3, the family fell apart. So I think it is kind of important there that the command was given to Adam, and Adam didn't seem to follow through on being a spiritual leader. Rose. Well, I don't think any of us have to go very far to think about I should have or I shouldn't have. Right. You know, that's just being human. Yeah. And that's the beauty of grace and mercy as well, too, because I can spend all night tonight thinking about should have, would have, could have, and keep myself up in guilt and condemnation, or I can just accept the fact that Jesus forgave me and walk in forgiveness. Ron, I think you had your hand up. Well, I was just going to mention that uh, Adam's not like a lot of men in their marriages today. They're not, uh, they're not taking the spiritual role that they're supposed to take. Yeah. That's exactly what it is, men not spiritually leading. I, I mean, I don't mean, I'm not trying to pick on people when I say this because I struggle and fail on my own. But if we had stronger spiritual leaders of men, it would be a lot different. 
I asked Dawn one time, I said, what, what is the one thing you want me to do? And her simple answer was, just pray with me every day. I thought, wow, just be a leader. And you know, so often as men, we, we think we're doing our jobs by providing financially. Look at the yard, I took care of it, I took out the trash, and I took care of that skunk that came into the garden. I'm a man. Well, good for you, but are you spiritually leading your family? You're spiritually taking care of your wife. And too often as men, I think we base our value on these secular worldly ideas where really God says the value of a man is are you spiritually, I mean, as it says in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, I'm supposed to wash dawn by the water of the word. And then I present her to Christ, a glorious, glorious thing. Very simply put, when I die and stand before the Lord, one of the things asked to me is how did I take care of my family? How did I take care of Dawn? Biblically speaking, that's not asked of a wife. It's not going to be asked of Dawn. Dawn, how did you spiritually lead James? That's not her calling. My calling is to spiritually lead her, and I have a spiritual responsibility for that. That's a, that's a big responsibility. I remember one time I was doing counseling with a guy, and he said, it's not fair. I said, sometimes I think it's not fair either. But that's what God called us to do, so we lead. It's difficult. It's always difficult to be the leader. Anybody else have anything here before we close up? Yeah, Terry. Uh, just to look at it from a different angle, Proverbs eighteen twenty two, and the reason that there's no verse in there saying that a you know, um, woman that finds a you know, good husband is a good thing is because it's an obvious given. Oh, wow. <laughs> this verse is more like a, a verse telling someone when they get a shot, it's going to hurt, but it's good for them. Amen. Amen. You want to come up and say this in the mic? That was. <laughs> That was deep and profound. We're going to get a plaque out here at church. Real quick, I do need to say this because I forgot to mention this point, and I know we're late here. Please look at verse 22. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. This is something I say a lot to single people that came up to me, and they're looking for the spouse. I always say in verse 22, God brings the spouse to you. I'm not saying don't keep your eyes and ears open, but I've run into Christians that have made it their ministry to find their spouse. Eve was created specifically for Adam. And I have an ongoing joke with somebody out here at church where I ask him all the time, have you met your Eve? And I say, trust me, God will bring an Eve into your life. And so if you have single friends or if you're single yourself and you're struggling with the idea of being single, respect verse 22. God has a specific person that is created for you that will be a blessing for you and he will bring that person into your life at the right moment, at the right time. And it will be a blessing. I've run into people that try to speed the process up. Don't. Trust the Lord in patience, and God will honor that. So I forgot to mention that point. Anybody else have any final questions, comments here about anything we covered tonight? Covered a lot of areas. So next week, I hate to say it, it all goes downhill. And I wish it, it, it really does. And because of Genesis 3, there's a lot we got to talk about. So we'll get into that next week. So don't forget helping load up tables and chairs after here tonight for the Harvest Party. And don't forget that's going to be Saturday, 530 at the home of Russ and Renee Winsinger. Let's go ahead and pray. We'll let you guys go. Heavenly Father, good to be here tonight. And Lord, once again, for those that are uh, in marriage, Lord, I pray that the men would love their wives as Christ loved the church and lead. I pray the wives would respect, honor, and submit. Lord, I pray that we would honor the institution of marriage. For those that are single that may be looking for a spouse, to trust that you will bring the right person at the right time. And maybe there's some here tonight that are just single or, or maybe widowed. Just pray that they would have the blessing of encouragement for those that are married just to keep fighting the good fight. What a blessing it can be. And we thank you and we praise you for our spouses. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, you guys have a good week and God bless.